welcome back to you and I for the Kenai. We're here today recording a great community resource today. We have Shara Pritchard with us from Kenai Public Health. Shara's been a public health nurse for six years now, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, and so she's kind of here to tell us about some of the services public health offers and how you can access them. So I guess first, we'll actually just learn a little bit about you. Why public health? Well, I'm from Nikiski, Alaska, and I've lived here. I went to college outside, and then I came back. But when I was in college, I actually um, specialized in intensive care, and I decided that I'd rather work a little further upstream. So Sure. And so did you initially when you, so you get your uh, BSN, right, mm-hmm. and you become an RN, did you work in an ICU for some time and you're like, you know, maybe there's something, or was it, like, how did that transition? That was uh, during my senior specialty mm-hmm. while I was still in school. And I, you were in Colorado, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't necessarily have the option of taking a specialty in public health. Sure. And so I told my professor to challenge me and she put me in the intensive care unit, so. Okay. Okay. So then how did you move from intensive care to public health? Or did you, like after school, did you start immediately in public health? Immediately in public health, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, and so. so were you thinking that you wanted to come come back to, like, was your plan in Colorado, like, I'm going to get my degree, then I'm going to go, go do back home. nursing in, in Alaska? Yep, go okay. back home. Okay. Kind of serve my own community. So. Cool, cool. You get up here, how did you stumble upon public health searching for jobs really yeah. okay yeah and i already knew about kenai public health because i was a client at kenai public health so okay cool so you've been working at public health for about six years now and i actually it was funny we were at the project homeless connect and i was like you know i think you taught my class one day i took a a class on human sexuality in in uh undergrad at KPC, and Shara actually, on behalf of Kenai Public Health, taught our class that day about different public health stuff. Um, Why don't you, so that would be, you've talked about Kenai Public Health doing kind of services of care on three different levels, on an individual, a community, and a systems-based level. What would teaching a class be? Is that a community, that's a community level? Yeah, that would be a community-based service So we provide a lot of community health educations. We can educate on immunizations, um, sexually transmitted infections. You guys do free screenings, right? Um, Or scale-based free screenings? So um, in 2016, the state of Alaska experienced a budget crisis, and that resulted in public health nursing force reductions and then also facility closures across the state. So we reduced our age parameters of people that we see, and we're not considered a medical home, so um, we consider ourselves like a safety net service. Mm -hmm. And there's a value to our service, to public health services, so there's always a fee that is assessed. Um, Granted, it's based on a, a sliding fee scale, and that's dependent on how many are in the family, what your income is, and then They will slide from there, but no one has refused services due to the inability to pay. And then we don't charge insurances and we won't send any bills. So So So, affordable STI screenings. Yes. Yeah. And with the sliding fee scale, just so, I mean, I'm sure 90% of our listeners are aware, but that's basically operating on the idea that the fee is going to move relatively in step with your 
income. And like you said, it's going that income, like that that single number of income is also going to be compared to like household size and things like that. So mm-hmm. there is some like relativity to it all, but nonetheless, it's going to move somewhat in step with your overall money coming in, your revenue. Yes. And okay. then um, we don't require proof of income. So it's mm-hmm. based on what you tell us, like an honor system. And mm-hmm. then um, uh, kind of move from there. But, you know, if you don't have the funds available at the time, we're not going to turn you away for the inability to pay. So. And when you say you don't send a bill, you're saying, so if I say, hey, I make $500,000. And you say, okay, well, then the f- full price of our... Um, services let's say a hundred dollars but if i say but i don't have any money right now with me mm-hmm. what kind of happens then you don't send a bill we don't send a bill um if an individual says like i would like to pay and um, we would just send them with a fee envelope and then they can send it in oh okay mm-hmm. okay cool cool so i mean if you really have a need then and there and you guys have the woman power manpower to do it it gets done generally Oh, yes. Yeah. Cool. And I think what's awesome about that is, so one, like having a sliding fee scale where people can get their services met, you know, they get their needs met. That's Mm -hmm. great. You know, I mean, that's awesome. Needed. However, I think sometimes people, even knowing, though, that like, oh, there are options for me, are daunted by the process of what those options require one to go through. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Especially a lot of time with like proof of or proof of incomes. Like you have to get this tax return, get this. Maybe they want to see like a little more detailed version of this income return. So then they want to see like certain tax documents, such as any kind of W2s or anything of the like, you know, and it becomes Mm -hmm. like a, it's a, it's a barrier to accessing healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the nice things about public health is that we're really concerned about those barriers and um, we want to alleviate those health inequities for our populations. And so just making sure that we can ensure that access to healthcare and Yeah. And I think that's good for our listeners to know, especially as they hear more about all that you guys offer, because I know I'm routinely like, wow, surprised, you know, we're just like, wow, like, this is a lot of services. I think they will be served and are served to know that the process of obtaining these services is about as simple as it gets. Yes, Mm -hmm. it's a phone call. And if they're interested in a particular service, they can talk to our office staff and discuss the sliding fee scale. So like just kind of meander down this same avenue with uh, screenings and things. You guys offer family planning services as well? Yep, we can provide birth control and well women exams and then also STD, STI screening and treatment for those who are 29 and under. We do pregnancy verifications for Medicaid, emergency contraceptive appointments. We can also provide all options counseling for those who are pregnant and refer them where they need to go. Nice. So all your <laughs> all your reproduction needs are met at yes. Kenai Public Health Care to do things and do things safely. So yeah. I th- and I think that's super important, especially for either the underinsured population or just the underserved population especially, but even just anybody that needs to have it done and may not really just feel, even feel comfortable going to like their family doctor or even like 
just any situation where you kind of need to be safe, feel safe in a place like that and situations like that is important. Yeah, and we can also see uh, minors for family planning appointments um, without parental consent. So that's another avenue for adolescents who are also seeking health care. I see, uh, you know, we wrote, we kind of talked a little bit before and talked about some of the different, you know, things you things that public health offers. And one of the things you mentioned on an individual level uh, was the well-child exam. What is, what, what is that? So well-child exams, uh, we can do those for children through, through six years of age and under. Basically what it is is a head-to-toe assessment, a health assessment, and then a developmental screen based on their age, making sure they're meeting the milestones for their age and development, and then other things such as immunizations, uh, getting hemoglobin or lead screenings, doing referrals for dental vision. And we're doing those as a preventive factor to make sure that we're catching those things early. And same thing with well-child exams. Well-child exams aren't necessarily just for children who are not feeling well. We want to see children when they are well so that we can catch issues early and prevent Mm -hmm. those and um, get them to be seen by specialists if they need that. But in regards to lead, uh, we have higher lead in Alaska sometimes for our children just because we're we have more exposure um if you live in a house that was built before 1970 um, um, you might be in contact with lead paint and things like that but also when we think of Alaskans um, a lot of the times we have uh, fish weights that are leaded fish weights and or people who reload ammunition and things like that which is all lead based as well so just Mm -hmm. making sure to catch that early. So another service you you can offer to individuals is uh, TB case management. How uh, how common like is TB like these days? Alaska I mean, is number one in the U.S. for um, tuberculosis, and most often all healthcare workers are screened for tuber- tuberculosis prior to working. But it's very common in the state of Alaska. So yeah. what does TB case management all involve? So uh, tuberculosis is a bacterial infection or bac- bacterium that people breathe in, and that's how they're exposed because it's uh, spread through droplets in the air from somebody who's infected with TB. And so usually how it looks from our standpoint is we screen someone for t- TB, um, whether that be a tuberculosis skin test or a something we call an IGRA, which is a blood draw. And um, dependent on those results, and dependent on the client's specific situation, whether or not they've been in contact with TB or um, it's just a general preventative screening, uh, we move from there. So if they do have a positive screen, then um, we refer them to a provider to get them kind of hooked up with a medical home. And we also usually move to other health-related stuff like getting them a chest x-ray, especially if they're symptomatic, and then also obtaining uh sputum specimens so that we can get those cultured out to see if they also grow TB. And then um, we work right alongside with the state epidemiologists up in Anchorage and also our local providers to do that type of case management. And usually how it works is a doctor will see them, they'll get all of our lab results, and then they will determine whether this person has latent tuberculosis or active tuberculosis and come up with a treatment regimen. And public health nurses can actually request those medications um, from the state of Alaska. 
And then we can also provide direct observed therapy for those medications. Sometimes people that have TB, for example, latent, latent TB, they might be put on like a 12-week regimen where they're taking medications once a week for 12 weeks. And a provider may not necessarily have the capacity to see that individual and provide that service every week. And so that's kind of where public health nurses work alongside our local providers to be able to give that person their medication and make sure that they were taking it. So So that's, yeah, I mean, that's the case management of it all. That's the case management of it. That's pretty complex. And then also... At least it's it's very involved. Yeah, and then also, um, if there were active TB, um, public health nurses would be the ones who would be doing the contact investigation for that individual to see who that they were in contact with and getting those individuals screened to see if they picked up... So So that's where you would kind of get into like where individual service and a community service would start to bridge in some way, right? I mean, because that's going to be TB case management alongside some idea of disease control. I mean, to some extent, right? Yes. Yeah. We can bridge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's very involved. I, uh, is, so when you say that Alaska is number one, like in like TB, uh, you know, the, the prevalence of it all. And I actually learned in my health class back in the day the difference between incidence and prevalence. So mm-hmm. I feel I feel very I feel very under equipped, but at times I feel a little bit kind of equipped to have these conversations because I think this is, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just I think unless you're like really, unless this kind of, and I think it's about like similar to other issues too. Unless you're starting to be impacted by some of these things. You just don't really stumble upon a lot of like public health lingo, you know, in your everyday life. I mean, there's a lot of things you stumble upon in the everyday life kind of lingo, but I don't think public health lingo is like super prevalent at times, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think just like using like being, people being familiar with what some of this can mean is, is, is helpful. Um, I would, I would say just to kind of put it in in perspective, there hasn't been a time where I have worked in public health in the last six years where we haven't been case managing TB clients. Really? So, um, it's, it's not an old disease. It's yeah. very, very upfront. Because when I hear present. it, I, mm-hmm. I think like, at least what I start to think is that it's like archaic, you know, that it's old, that it's not like super common. But I, I mean, that's a misconception I possess, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. right? is that it is, it's, it's more common than I think. Yeah, it is. Okay. And you hear this all the time, even in school, you know, all the way up, like, yeah, every so often you should go get, you know, your immunizations and you should go get tested and you should have like a well, a well human checkup. I don't know what they call Mm -hmm. it, but just a checkup, right? Your Your physical every year, you should get that stuff done. And like, especially in Alaska and like other like blue collar places, you're like, oh, we're too busy. You know, we're working, we got things to do, you know, it's like, you don't really ever like, and plus like, there's this weird thing about doctors too, in like a cultural sense where like, people like just don't go to doctors and like we just put off going to doctors for like as long as possible mm-hmm. like and we think of every other excuse in the book not to go to doctors but dude with public health like I think about like some of the like barriers that I usually bring up when avoiding my doctor and I'm like and now I don't have any excuses and I'm like oh man <laughs> like all this stuff like in the like all we're talking about you know like all these things that are super important because like we're number one in TB from what I understand we're one or two in the country in like every STI, right? So uh, for uh, chlamydia, we're number one in the nation for chlamydia 
per capita. And Mm -hmm. then we're also number two in the nation for gonorrhea per capita. And um, I want to say a few years back, don't quote me on this, but a a few years back we were 20 for gonorrhea. So it has jumped up. For things like syphilis, we actually are currently having the largest outbreak in about 40 years for syphilis in the Anchorage area. And so really? um, um, it's a lot of these preventable diseases that we can prevent by just getting those right. health checkups, the regular mm-hmm. health checkups, and then just uh, knowing the value in preventative health. Yeah. So we have no excuses. We have to go get checked up. It's yeah. important that we do that, Everybody, all of us as Alaskans. And so this um, kind of segues in to the community aspect, right? So like now educating the community on that, first of all, these things are present and public health is here and we can get you checkups. You do other health educations, right, as well mm-hmm. throughout the community? Yep. So we do uh, educations on immunizations and that's also one of our um, primary clinic-based services. And, you know, public health is really known for immunizations, mm-hmm. Um preventing those uh, vaccine-preventable illnesses, but um, we can see those 29 and under for immunizations. Uh, Most of our adult vaccines are limited. In what sense? In in the sense that we have a state vaccine program, the AVAP program, and they allow us to provide like tetanus for 29 and under, um, HPVs, flu vaccines, but beyond that, it's quite limited now. But we also operate under the Vaccine for Children program, so children through age 18 can get all of their required vaccines through that program. And so um, that's a nice thing Mm -hmm. that we can do. And because those federal funds are available to provide those vaccines, um, we only assess a fee for a nurse to like poke that kid basically. Mm -hmm. So it's considerably less than what you would be paying if you went had private stock vaccine elsewhere. Yeah. Like a, a private doctor's office, but a lot of other providers are also doing the vaccine for children program as well. So, right. you know, a lot of what we've talked about the well child, the exams, the immunization, the family planning, the TB case management, um, the STI um, testing and options, all of that is, you know, it, it basically serves a wide range of people. Um, obviously, a lot of some of these or uh, some of these are 29 and under, like you said. But as our podcasts have a lot of times, you know, they're community-minded, strongly community-minded in one sense, but are also specific to the consequences of drug use, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, at times uh, very much so focused on, like, helping the community that is, you know, living with addiction. Um, Which brings me to us mentioning you mentioning you slash public health many times in our um, podcast as we've listed the availability for Narcan um, at public health. And I think the thing that is really cool when I first learned about it, what I first thought was, I mean, it's like a hundred to $200. Like if you were to just like purchase it like privately Mm -hmm. um, and you can get it at public health um, for free, right? Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us about how people would get Narcan, which we've kind of talked about before, but if you could talk about how you would would get Narcan from public health, like when can you get it? What's that process like? And after that, can you tell us about some of the really amazing efforts that you guys have made in the past to make Narcan available to people? Yeah. So, um, 
If you are 18 years or over, um, you can access Narcan kits at Kenai Public Health. Um, you can walk in Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and a nurse will be able to see you. Um, it's a really simple process. Um, basically, we receive these Narcan kits through Project Hope. Um, Project Hope has deputized us to be a opioid response program, public health um, centers across the state, um, to provide these based on that uh, disaster declaration um, in, I want to say, February 2017. Yeah, I think Walker um, made that, right? Yeah, that mm -hmm. uh, allowed us to be able to um, provide these life-saving medications. Um, and um, it, it's really sim simple in that people can just show up, ask for an Arcan kit, they'll meet with our nurse of the day, and uh, they will fill out a little demographic form. And that's basically... Uh, to help Project Hope uh, continue to receive funds for these Narcan kits. Yeah, so they can say, hey, people are actually using this. Yeah, yeah. People and, need um, this. We should keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. and then a little pre-survey about um, what they know about Narcan, um, how they heard about us, and then um, how comfortable they would feel giving Narcan already. And then, um, then we'll go through about a five to ten minute training, which you guys saw also at Project Homeless Connect, mm -hmm. and then do a post survey, and we ask them how many kits that they would need. So there have been times where we've had like one individual, um, maybe who was in recovery but was still concerned about their friends, neighbors, family members, brothers, whoever it might have been, that were not in recovery yet, and then picking up those Narcan kits for them. So. Mm -hmm. um, just helping one another. And it's not necessarily just for people that are maybe misusing or abusing drugs. It's also for the little old lady who mm -hmm. is taking maybe uh, strong opioids for whatever health issue they might be having. And um, maybe they're not so good at taking their meds and forget that they already took a dose. And uh, this allows, you know, their, their significant other to be able to provide that medication if there was an accidental overdose, and then also if a child were to get a hold of those medications as well to make sure to keep our heads, our kids safe. Mm -hmm. so. And you can, this just had me thinking, you can walk in and get medics, uh, the medication disposal bags too, right? Just yes. Right at the front desk? Absolutely, yep. Yeah. And those disposal bags are really nice to be able to hand out because um, a lot of people keep those medications in their cabinets for years and years and years it's it's almost like i hate to say it but the alaska way that they would keep their medications for a long time and for 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 later i don't know why but um yeah. it's an easy way for them to dispose of them so incorrectly mm -hmm. right yeah and to, to touch on those medication disposal bags a little further uh, for people that don't know um what they are they, they're these little bags with like a powder Right. I mean, like I've a, never opened one up. Actually, I've felt it and handed out hundreds, but it's like a charcoal based okay. system. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what what's happening is you open it up, you put the medications in and you also put like patches There's, and it kind of describes it on the bag what you can put in. So you can put in these different like kind of like active chemical things, really, you know, whether they be pills or patches or what have you. You put them in, you put some water in you seal it up, you shake it up for what, and then let it sit for like half a minute or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And then what it does is I believe it, it creates like somewhat of a neutral compound across, you know, that, that whole, uh, 
solution then becomes like a neutral compound that yeah, then you can deactivates like, the active ingredients met in the medication and then the bag is biodegradable as well so you throw it away and then it doesn't get into your water table or eagles don't eat it and get sick and die and poison your food system or yeah. any of the food chain or your water table or anything like that so it's like pretty much the most environmentally and safe environmentally friendly way and the safest way to get rid of your medications and just kind of be rid of them so you don't have to worry about them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and those are just uh, examples of public health uh, responding to disasters. Um, that's another one of our community-based uh, services is emergency preparedness. So we kind of prepare and build our community's capacity to handle natural disasters and emergencies. And you, you had mentioned like what we've done in the past in regards to Narcan. Um, I would say kind of one of our shining achievements for at least Kenai Public Health. And I would say also our, our awesome prevention partners like Peninsula Points on Prevention, Lee Shore Center, and Change for Kenai. We came together to have a disaster drill, which is called, what we had was a point of dispensing drill, where we actually dispensed Narcan as if we were dispensing medication for a disaster, um, like a disaster drill for the community. And I want to say it was about 300 Narcan kits that were given out in 2018. So at that drill. Yeah, I remember that event. I actually, for one reason or another, I don't know what it was, but I couldn't be at that event that day. But I remember when that whole thing was getting planned and then uh, was actually, you know, put on. And I remember it was ended up being a, a big deal. That's really cool. And I think what you do see is that, and you can hear stories and you can see, I don't know if there's actually like, like Soldatna specific data that says like explicitly this Narcan saved my life. And I don't know if we have like that, but I do, I have heard a number of stories where it was like this person was overdosing and they were administered Narcan and like they live today and they otherwise very likely wouldn't, you know. And so it is a, it is a really, uh, and I've told this story before, but I have a friend and he used to, and he used to do heroin and he, uh, he said that one day he was using and his friend and he had never heard of Narcan, but then his friend said, or I, I don't know if it was his friend. It was like this dude that he, you know, did drugs with. And he said uh, to my friend, like, hey, I have this stuff here, this Narcan stuff, you know. Like, if I, you know, like, become, like, remarkably unresponsive, like, you got to hit me with it, you know. And my friend actually did have to hit him with it that day, like, that day and saved his life. And, and I think you hear stories of, you know, not just people who are, like, using and have it with them, but also, like, the people who have, like you said, the people who have family or friends or other members who, who they know like may need it. Yeah. And I, I I think that like when you hear about somebody, um, going to a hospital for something and they get seen, they get treated right away. And there's an outcome that's like happens right away. Mm -hmm. Um, for public health, sometimes those outcomes take a really long time to be able to be seen. And so like things like Narcan, like you said, you know, your friend was able to save his life right there. Like we don't know the effects of getting those Narcan kids out, except for that they're going to save lives. Right. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily getting as far upstream as that public health would probably hope, but it is a harm reduction uh, tool right. that we have to mitigate like further deaths. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that was a, a nice thing to be able to provide those, um, just for that, um, life saving principle. So, yeah, absolutely. 
And then you guys do other things in the community too, right? So you, I know Shara works specifically in a number of our other uh, community coalitions and things like that and as a citizen and public health, right? Yeah. In yeah, a in a way. <laughs> the all-in-one. Yeah. So we'll talk about some of the other groups you guys are working in now. So a lot of what we do, community-based services, is we do a little community organizing and development. So we participate on local community groups to perform community assessments with kind of a population focus or a public health focus. And like a bachelor's prepared nurse eye, like a bird's eye view of um, community assessments. And so that's kind of nice. We participate on things like the Transportation Coalition, Shelter Development Work Group, um, which is operating under the Continuum of Care umbrella and uh, trying to get that cold weather shelter for our homeless population here. Let's see. Another one of our nurses is on our reentry coalition, and that's trying to get uh, folks out of jail, reentering into the public and uh, making sure that they're safe and they have the resources that they need, those type of things. I'd also say that um, some of our community-based work is just knowing what all the resources are out there for our clients. And not very many people know that they can call public health and they can speak directly to a bachelor's prepared nurse, whether it be a health-related question or just a needs question, we can actually link them to all the available resources that we know of here. And so um, that's a really nice community-based service that we offer as well. Yeah, I think that's really important, making sure people know. I mean, if even if like even if you don't want to go to the doctor, like if something's like serious, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like knowing like, guys, public health is here, it's mm -hmm. affordable, and all just the different services from immunizations to all the different screenings to well child to Narcan to your disposal bags to pretty much a lot of like the most fundamental things that you, you need to survive are like at public health and they're affordable. And you guys are right in Kenai, right? Yeah, we're in Kenai. Um, we're located behind uh, the IGA grocery store in Kenai. And our number is, if anybody wants to call for uh, or has questions, our number is 907-335-3400. And our physical address is 630 Barnacle Way, Suite A in Kenai. Anybody can access these services, and if you have questions about whether or not you're eligible for services, just call and ask. I want to make a, a good point about Alaska Public Health Nursing in, in that all of these services are um, available across the entire state, mm -hmm. and we are rep we're represented all the way across the state, but we have three regions. So um, we've got South Central, which includes Kenai. Frontier and Southeast, and we're unique in that we have about 100 public health nurses who operate um, under one medical director, and um, we actually have four nurse practitioners as well that uh, operate under that medical director. So we have kind of robust medical directives from mm -hmm. our medical director that we operate under, and then I think <laughs> we have um, 16 public health centers and two in our Kenai subregion. So the one in Kenai actually services north of Nanilchik to Hope and to Seward. We and Tyonic, the village across the Cook Inlet. Actually, one of our nurses itinerates to Seward about twice a month. She could speak more to that, but the same services are offered there. And uh, we also have another health center in Homer, which serves south of Nanilchik to the villages Soldovia, Port Graham, and Nanwalik across the bay. And so we have a very large service area that we provide services to. Just in Alaska in general, that's kind of 
it, it makes sense because we've got a big area to cover. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's a number of individual services at public health that we've talked about: the well-child exam, the immunizations, the family planning, the TB case management, the STI screenings, and I think also, and I, and I don't can't speak to this entirely, but I imagine. If there are some different health questions that if they, if you guys can't answer them specifically, that you would probably know who they who to refer them to. Yep, we, we do a lot of linking and referring. Cool, because um, I think that's a big thing too. Is that sometimes the, another barrier is that people think like, well, maybe they can do this, but maybe they can't, and there starts to be a little bit more of a simple like idea that it it becomes more complex than well, if they don't if they can't answer my question precisely they can direct me to who can, you know, that's a simple, that's pretty simple. And there's not a lot of barriers to that. Nope. You not know, at all. That, that's good. The Narcan, you know, as it's continually needed and as we continue to address the, the opioid difficulties we face here uh, on the Kenai Peninsula, you know, I think those will continue. Well, I think I know those can, will continue to stay very important and their availability is very important. You can get those at public health, um, continuing health, different, not continuing, but different health education, you know, you guys continue to do for the community, emergency preparedness, infectious disease control, and the systems-based services are participating with local community groups. So there's a ton that Kenai Public Health does, and I, uh, I'll i never forget that it's off Barnacle Way because of Barnacle Boy. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think that's on SpongeBob. I think Barnacle Boy is on SpongeBob. He is. Isn't Mer- he? Yeah, he's Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy. So mm-hmm. I always remember, oh, public health off Barnacle Boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, anyway, I think what's really cool, you know, all of this is really cool, but what's really cool to me is in a healthcare system where there can just be so many barriers, things can be so complex at times, or just at least we get the impression that it is, those barriers don't exist at public health. You know, I mean, for the most part, you walk in, if they don't, if you can't answer your question right then, they know someone who can. And if you need the service, it's about as simple as it gets to get it, um, and, and if they offer it, and they very well may. So... This was uh, Eric and Aaron and Shara from Kenai Public Health. Thank you so much for uh, being here. If you have anything, like any last words you want to say, now would be the time. Um, I want to just say something a little bit about um, some other work that we're working on to reduce substance misuse in our communities. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple ways that we're doing this besides um, the harm reduction with Narcan kits is we're really focusing on um, social determinants of health. And what's that? What um, is that um, for what, the listeners? What, what that is is that... it's basically conditions or factors where we live, work, or play that affect our health. So, for example, transportation. Mm-hmm. That's a good we, definition. We work on transportation uh, because we know that it's vital to accessing healthcare, and then also say like housing, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So those. Those themselves are social determinants of health. You know, if a person has transportation, they've got a place to live, and they have access to health care, they have better opportunities to improve their health. So um, we're really focused on, like, alleviating those barriers and improving social determinants of health so that we have a healthier population as a whole. So, mm-hmm. um, and I know that um, we've been doing some daycare provider, provider educations about ACEs. Mm-hmm. And so that's another um, kind of more upstream substance misuse. I'm going to fill in too about ACEs a little bit. ACEs are um, adverse childhood experiences. And basically what that is is 
adversities that really affect children and communities. Um, examples would be divorce, bullying, abuse, maybe being homeless, homeless or domestic violence, or because some of these are like really socially complex issues. So maybe mm-hmm. a variety of all of those things. Right, and it's. Uh, I'm gonna <clears throat> speak on Aces for mm-hmm. a second. Um, it's been a minute since I've read the study, but adverse childhood experiences, otherwise obviously talked about as ACEs, are that study and like the idea of ACEs in general has really taken off in how we, in, in like the medical and psychological world and how we're viewing um, health, I guess, is, and I'll, get, I'll be more specific. It's the idea that things that you face in or experience in childhood that uh, would be talked about as like adversity um, can produce certain outcomes in adulthood that are long lasting and can be, can wire. I want to talk. Trying to talk about this in a way that doesn't say because I, I don't want to say you experience these certain things and then your life is doomed, you know. And I think you have to be careful not to talk about mm-hmm. it like that. But on the other hand, you have to also, I think, be very upfront with the idea that we we're starting to see in research that these certain things that you may experience in childhood can have really long-lasting impacts, and that being aware of this of the uh, outcomes can potentially, we hope, both give meaning and understanding to certain difficulties one may face in adulthood, you know, may help explain those, and they may help increase our willingness and desire to prevent our youth from experiencing these types of experiences. Yeah. So in California, I think, I don't remember exactly when, I think was it the 70s or the 80s, there was this and I think this is still kind of exists today. There's like a huge healthcare system um, called Kaiser Permanente, and they had like just, I mean, just widespread reach in the medical community throughout um, California. I mean, a, a hospitals all over the place, um, and so they had a, an extremely large amount of data. And what they were able to do is they were able to look at like these certain outcomes of people in adulthood. And then they looked at like all these different linkages and they did all these really uh, meaningful statistical analyses and they started to see like, man, we see that there's these certain childhood outcomes that are pretty or experiences that are pretty predictive of these certain outcomes in, uh, in health, in one's health outcomes in adulthood that we think are meaningful and to some extent, and you have to be careful using this word causal, you know? And so some of those were like, right. What you were saying is like substance use in the home. I remember, I don't remember all of them. There used to be, cause it's been so popular. There used to be, I think like eight, you know, so main, I mean, there's 10 and I then think. they grew. And it's then I think now, and now you know, now they're getting, yeah, up to like yeah. 15, but it's like different organizations or like perspectives on this like have their different categories. But some of them, like you said, were, you know, like you said, a certain separation um, of the parents in the home, like if that can be particularly traumatic, um, bully, kid, children experiencing bullying. The ones I remember particularly were like parent being incarcerated. So mm-hmm. if a child experiences like their mo- mother or father being incarcerated. So yeah, essentially you're, 
you're tr- you're educating childcare workers on like being mindful of these and being aware of these and knowing their impacts. Is well, and I, th- I think the first step to prevention is just making people aware of what ACEs are and, sure. and then how they can actually impact you further down the road. So, you know, these childhood traumas, like we listed, a lot of those kind of result in that toxic stress for a child and it can actually uh, harm a child's brain. Mm-hmm. Um, it can prevent them from learning in ways that would be, you know, regular for everybody else. But, um, um, it can also result in those long-term health problems, like you had mentioned, um, even social, emotional, or cognitive impairments. But some of those outcomes would be, um, from exposure to ACEs, would be an increased risk of adolescent pregnancy, alcoholism, alcohol abuse, um, depression, illicit drug use and substance misuse, but also things like heart disease. Yeah, and, that was um, what was really diabetes. powerful for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all really powerful, mm-hmm. but that was one of the things I was like, wow, like that's probably going to make people really scratch their heads, I guess, you know, like even yeah. like heart disease and things like that. Well, and then also another um, would be suicide attempts as well. Right. So just a couple little facts I have written down here is um, Alaskans with more than six aces usually die up to 20 years younger than those with zero aces. And a person with four or more aces is usually 12 times more likely to attempt suicide and 10 times more likely to use injection drugs. And so, like you said, ACEs are predictive um, for some poor health outcomes. So if the more we educate people and make them aware of what ACEs are, um, the more likely we're able to prevent them and then also prevent those um, lifelong health problems. Mm -hmm. um, And then also teaching people about what resiliency is and how mm -hmm. resiliency can be a factor um, to kind of bring back that the the hope to the whole scenario because mm-hmm. aces are a, a big downer right um, yeah and I think that's you know what I was, and I think that's a better way to put it than than I did you know is like how do we speak about the realities and the implications of certain aces of these experiences um, while also not saying and you're doomed you know I mean is there that buffer and you're saying like the resilience of it all yeah and and what resiliency might be to each individual basically it's just the ability to return to being healthy and having some hope after bad things happen Um, but also it's things like a parent or a safe adult providing a safe environment for a child and um, teaching them how to be resilient mm-hmm. and um, kind of giving them those strength-based factors to um, face life's challenges kind of like head mm-hmm. on despite despite what those might be. Yeah, um, yeah so we're, we're doing a lot of education with that and hope to kind of move forward as well. We really think that, you know, community programs that reduce ACEs and then increasing that resiliency is a, more of an upstream mm-hmm. method to reduce mm-hmm. substance misuse mm-hmm. before it happens. So Public health has also become a trauma-informed workplace, and we're really involved with sharing all of that information as well. So, What's your idea of what trauma-informed whatever means? You know, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed workplace. I hear – because I think – and the reason I ask is because I think, you know, I observe – like there's like buzzwords that come in mm-hmm. to the, the different professions in the different areas of work. And trauma-informed, I would say, over the last few years Buzz. is like super buzzword. Mm-hmm. And when and that's great, you know. But I like I would like to, for listeners and like as we move all move forward in our work, is like, okay, what does what does the this mean, you know? 
Like, yeah. So I, I'm going to put it in kind of a, a phrase. So as we're working with individuals or just any interpersonal relationship that we might have with people, kind of coming from a mindset of instead of saying like, what's wrong with you? Asking the question like, what happened to you? Or um, how can I support you? Those type of things is coming from a more reflective p- place where you don't necessarily know what's happened to the person who's walked into the door today, mm-hmm. what kind of hardships they've maybe dealt with during the day or during their life that's going to impact how um, they're living their life. And so just kind of being aware that we should be there as a support and not to like re-traumatize people. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think uh, like what you what you say about that is I think that leads me to think and is also it, it gives meaning to it, it kind of links back to the aces as well as it kind of gives meaning to what's happened to people. I think by asking, like instead of asking what is wrong with you, meaning like there is just something looking, wrong with you, first of all, right? Or that yeah. it's your or fault. Just, like, yeah, absolutely. Like instead of like when you ask what you know what's wrong with you, it, it's like trying to look at the specific symptom. But by asking, like, what happened to you, it gives meaning to those things that we think actually do mean more than they – or they should mean more than they used to. You know, the aces are starting to say, like, hey, the things that happened – instead of asking specifically what's wrong with you, what's at, very valuable, we from the aces study believe – is what happened to these individuals is actually very important. And we see these as being causal and being relevant. And so by asking these types of questions of what happened to you, like it gives meaning to, in, to these things that have occurred that we do think is supposed to have meaning. So that makes sense. Right. I think that's very it's more of a illuminating. whole holistic way to go about approaching somebody is just meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. So, and part of that is maybe... Uh, not just what they walk in the door with today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel, uh, I feel smarter now. <laughs> Enlightened. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I know that sounds cheesy, but I actually do feel like, like, I when we have these different discussions, like, and you hear different, like, even things you've thought about or you've read, you know. But when people talk about them in their own, when they when they put them in their own words, like, I think sometimes. From a different lens. Yeah, I mean, it just starts to, like, bring things together, at least for me. Like, it brings things together a little bit more and a little bit more. And for you, our listener, um, Sherry will have you throw out Kenai Public Health phone number and address one more time real fast. Okay. So we know where to find you. All right, guys. So you can uh, connect with a public health nurse at uh, 907-335-3400. Um, You can call to make any appointments or ask questions, and we are located behind IGA Grocery Store in Kenai, and that's at the physical address 630 Barnacle Way, Suite A. They can't serve you. They'll find you somebody who can. Uh, They're an invaluable community resource for everybody in our community. Thank you so much for listening. This was you and I for the Kenai. Thank you.